Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creedal. I am joined today by John Waters, who is a journalist based in Ireland. I've had John on the show once before. That was all the way back in episode 25 of Creedal. And uh, in that episode, we talked about The Two Popes, which is a Netflix movie, sort of a, I mean, it's it's a drama, but sort of presents itself almost as a docudrama, which is, in fact, one of its main flaws on the relationship between uh, Pope Benedict XVI and Pope Francis, uh, riddled with, you know, just complete complete uh, falsehoods and half-truths. Uh, and there were a lot of problems with the film, but John and I uh, enjoyed conversing with one another about it. Uh, and then, a few months later, John went on to, uh, to run for Parliament in Ireland and became uh, an outspoken critic of much of the government's uh, COVID responses. Uh, he's also written recently, very recently, uh, in the pages of First Things, a book review, uh, reviewing a book about artificial intelligence that's uh, authored, um, co-authored, but one of the lead authors is Eric Schmidt, formerly of Google. Uh, and then John's also written, and this is all the way back in 2018, so this is not a new book, but definitely one that is worth your time. It's called Give Us Back the Bad Roads. Uh, and this is a this is a sort of part memoir, um, part tribute to uh, of his life and to his father, um, really lamenting the, the ways in which Ireland, uh, the Ireland of his youth is no longer the Ireland uh, of today. Uh, or conversely, the island today is no longer the island of his youth. So uh, many things that I'd love to talk with John about today. So I'm really excited that he agreed to come back on. Uh, and John, welcome back to Creedle. Thank you very much, Zach. Nice to be with you again. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, I have to say, John, as I'm reading the pages of your book, Give Us Back the Bad Roads, I'm struck by really uh, an overwhelming sadness of what I think we've lost. Ireland used to be one of the most um, Catholic countries in the world. Um, and then as you outline in your book, it became, it really sort of attracted the the target uh, or made itself an attractive target for um, progressive liberal activists who wanted to enact their agendas there and show the world that it can be done even in a country as Catholic as Ireland. And so um, the picture you paint in your book is, is really a quite dismal one. Um, but I'm wondering if we can just start with a little bit of the, you, and you tell this history in your book, and I encourage my listeners to go grab it for all the details. But um, I'm wondering if we can just sketch, sketch a you know a brief history of the last 20 years in Ireland. Um, what has changed? Uh, maybe paying particular attention to the 2015 and 2018 re referendums on gay marriage and abortion, um, respectively. Um, tell yeah. tell to my listeners what well, what have you seen change in Ireland? I think it, it, this goes back, of course, before that. And the roots of this are going back right to the 1970s, 80s, particularly the 90s, and and you know this push towards whatever progressivism and, and, and liberalism, you know, and, uh, you know, at that time, Ireland was a poor country uh, back in the 80s, but it was actually, in my experience, a generally very decent country to live in. Very, very, uh, a country that, that you could feel optimistic to live in, you know, that, that you weren't sure where it was going to go in the sense that, you know, it was full of expectation uh, uh, and, and possibility, but, you know, there wasn't any kind of uh, blueprint for what you had to do in order to move forward uh, and that that began to change in the 1990s where it was clear that there was only going to be one way that it could progress that progress meant one thing and one thing only and that meant moving away from what it was to, as I said to unbecome itself Ireland had to unbecome itself in order to progress that was the basically the analysis and of course that is essentially a totalitarian idea. It's the essence of totalitarianism, you know, according to Václav Havel, who would be have been in a position to know, you know, is that the whole of the future is set out for you and you are invited to go into it on the basis of what it is and not on what you would like it to be or what you would like to make it. And so, so this was, this, this kind of process started really in, intensively in the 1990s. And then in the as we turn into the millennial, it's intensified. Now, the first thing that happened really was that Ireland became prosperous. We had this thing called the Celtic Tiger, which is like, you know, the you know a mimicry of the Asian Tigers and all that. But, you know, we and of course, at the time, we believed it. This went on mm -hmm. for, for, you know, uh, more than a decade. And it was accepted for most of that period. And then suddenly it emerged that it was completely false. That it was based on, on on basically hot money and on inflated property prices and all kinds of stuff, and we had the crash of two thousand and eight. But in the meantime, that ten years was really a kind of a 
scorched earth of existing values because the idea was really uh, sold that, you know, Ireland's past value system, Catholic values, its, its Christian values, all those things were holding Ireland back. Mm-hmm. And that in order to move forward, we need to eradicate all of that. And people bought that. I'm, I'm not talking now, now. Now that's when this, this became a popular thing. You know, that's when people started to really kind of think, well, yeah, maybe that's right. Let's, let's, let's be rich. Because you know, in Ireland, Ireland had never been rich, you see. And it was like right. that, you know, it was now Ireland's turn to be rich. That history suddenly had smiled. The clouds had, had opened up and the sun had come out on Ireland. And Ireland was going to be rich and prosperous. And then, of course, that was dashed in 2008, 9, 10. You know, we had the, the Troika coming from the European Union and the IMF and all this to, to, to uh, basically seize our country and, and tell us how we were to live and what we had to do. And uh, there was great shame and indignity in that. And then it seemed that there's some all kinds of underhand deals were done on that basis. Uh, now, there was other, a number of significant changes that had already been happening. I mean, mass migration into Ireland had started quite surreptitiously around the turn of the millennium. And made, uh, we, well, obviously, with the opening up of the European Union, that was the first step. And that was kind of, you know, the Irish people had signed up to that. Uh, but out, along with that came other forms of migration, which nobody had talked about from all over the world. You know, and people started coming from all kinds of places. And people used to look at them and wonder, well, where, how did they come here? Why are they here? Who invited them? And how is it possible to get in in these numbers? Uh, you know, this, this kind of wasn't clear to anybody. And that was changing the culture of Ireland very radically without anybody particularly noticing because we were so busy being rich, as it were. You see, this is the problem with prosperity or even the illusion of prosperity. You don't pay attention. And then the other things that were happening is that big tech started to put its eye on Ireland. You know, all the, we now have are the headquarters of the European headquarters of most mm-hmm. of the big tech companies. For over 30, 40 years, we have been the headquarters of most of the big pharma companies, interestingly, in contemporaneous terms. You know, going back to the 1970s, when Ireland was essentially essentially offered itself up in, in dire economic circumstances, offered itself up to the pharmaceutical industry of the world to come here, and, and I'm not making this part up, to effectively to pollute the Irish landscape. They were invited mm-hmm. here on the basis that we had a pristine landscape, which had an enormous absorption capacity. Get that? In other words... They could pollute to their heart's content and nobody would notice wow. because it was already, you know, just like a, a, a tabula rasa. Like it was completely, it would take a long time for them to encounter the kind of impediments they were meeting in their home territories in America, for example, mm-hmm. where uh, legislation about environmentalism and ecol- ecological issues was becoming more and more, you know, ramped up. And so all of these factors then started to converge and then strange things started to happen. Things that, that, that had no internal basis. The first one was, well, there were lots, but I mean, just to give a few examples leading to the referendums you're talking about. The most significant referendum, in my opinion, was before those two. It was in 2012. And that was what was called a children's rights referendum. And that was essentially to, you know, allegedly to change the constitution uh, to basically give rights to children was the, the formulation. But of course, when you looked at it in any way closely, you realized that actually, you know, well, it makes sense to, to intuitively you would know if you thought about it. Well, how do you give rights to children? Children already have rights. They have the rights to be loved by their parents and cared for by their parents. You know, we, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a two-year-old child walk, crawling around the carpet, that child is not in a position to hire a lawyer and go to the high court. Right. Uh, yeah. to vindicate his or her rights, right? So the yeah, parents yeah. do that. But, but what this meant was that those rights were being taken from the parents and vested in the state. So now the state became, in a sense, a super parent. And this was insidious. So and what, what, in, that, in that 2012 uh, referendum, what were the rights of children that were ostensibly being assigned? Well, there was, they, they, they were quite vague in the sense that there were, there were, what it was, it was a changing of the constitution to, to uh, uh, alter the threshold by which the state could intervene in the family. Oh, I see. Yes, uh, okay. So for, and one of the things was that, for example, at certain ages, the child could actually be go into the state 
and seek legal representation against his or her parents. Yeah. You know, maybe around, I forget now, but it would depend on the particular situation. But it could be like 12 or 15, something like that. We fought that. A few of us, only a handful of us fought that. Really a very small number. And the strange thing was that of the three referendums that have happened in the last decade, that was the most successful, even though there were like literally about half a dozen of us uh, fighting it. And we got 42% of the of the vote on that referendum. And uh, people thought we were crazy to even oppose it. And the bizarre thing was that in the, we were opposing it on the basis of different things. Like, for example, social workers having a right to cross the threshold you know, the right to educate your own children according to your own values, those kinds of things were being wiped out and nobody cared. You see, that, that's the gain is a symptom of what I'm talking yeah. about, the kind of the Celtic tiger phase where basically, well, you know, every kind of value that was valued then was almost flipped over and you had kind of a moral inversion in the mentality of the public and the consciousness of the public where that almost they would say, well, whatever was good then is, is bad now or whatever was bad then is good now, Right. And, and that's kind of how that started. And then, that, of course, then the, the referendum of 2015, which was called marriage referendum, which was to give rights, uh, marriage rights to, 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 uh, to gays, um, really elevated that to a, to a further degree. Uh, you see, the Irish Constitution is very clear, it was very clear about marriage. You know, it, was, it, didn't, it didn't say in between a man and woman, but it actually assumed this to be the case. And then they put in this this objection or this this caveat or this this protocol whereby nothing in the constitution could be invoked to prevent you know or whatever something like that two men or two women getting married and you know, that was it like but but the bizarre thing was that of course when you think about it like that then you read the rest of the the provisions for the family which have to do with natural you know procreative functions and so on. I mean, the complementarity of men and women and so forth. These are all gone. Words like natural. What does it any longer mean in this context? Natural parenthood. What does that mean? If you if two men can have can be parents in the same way as a man and a woman. So all of these questions were live, but I mean, you know, it was a losing battle, as you said, because the culture had so radically changed that, that to talk about a value in that sense was almost to be legalistic, to seem legalistic. Oh, you know, this is about love. Forget about your legal legalisms, you know. But the problem was that nobody was willing to look and imagine mm -hmm. how this might play out in the future. And, of course, we don't fully know yet. But, for example, one of the things that in relation to this is the kind of consequences these things can have in relation to the 2012 children referendum. What it now means is that a, a, a child of maybe 12 who wants to transgender can actually now go to court against his or her parents wow. and prevent them interfering in the best interest of that child. In other words, the state will take up their, the child's cause, fight it against the parents, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. A similar thing arises now in the present situation in relation to vaccines. I mean, we're, we're waiting apprehensively to see, you know, are the government really seriously going to go after our children from five years upwards, which they've threatened to do? Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a, uh, a statement in the last uh, couple of days from the World Health Organization which says that children under 12 should never, should not take the vaccine, which is welcome. But that doesn't mean that our government will pay any notice to, to that because they're entirely selective, you know. And, and the whole no, thing when, is John, when you say there's been conversation about the government going after the five-year-old and up children, uh, are they talking about like forcibly vaccinating children or are they talking about... Well, yeah, they're, talking, we see they're talking about a, 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 a wholesale vaccination program of, of children from five upwards. Now, wow. ma mandating is a different question, which may come later. They're already threatening that. You know, they've, all, they've, been, they've, been multi, they've been muttering about this in the general context for some time. They push and then they pull back, then they push again. And it's all about, you see, manipulating public opinion because they, they're, what they've been trying to do is stoke up the, the public opinion against what they call the unvaxxed uh, or the anti-vaxxed, uh, the anti-vax, you know. So we could well, you know, like they've actually more or less established something that a 12-year-old can actually get the vaccine if they can, that child can decide to get the vaccine, regardless of what the parent mm -hmm. thinks. Now, that's, to me, monstrous. Right. 
the 12 year old child has no way of knowing or no way of judging what is good for him or her at that point. And of course, this all happens in a play in a situation where everything there is a profound corruption in the media where they will not report anything negative that is happening in relation to COVID, in relation to vaccines. We've had, uh, you know, in Ireland, we have a, an average mortality of about 30,000 per annum, right? Uh, now, you know, and that's pretty consistent year on year, with a slight incline, as you would expect, in a country that has been flooded with migrants mm-hmm. in the last uh, decade or two. But nevertheless, it's, it's said now this year, from the, this year to last year, there's been a, ter- a, ter- a 10% increase in excess mortality. And what we can see from study of the, of the death notices in the paper, in the, in the website that does this, is that many of these are sudden deaths, unexpected deaths, deaths after a short illness. And yet the papers refuse to do it. In fact, 3,000, that's, we're heading up for three, three and a half thousand, which is roughly equivalent to the number of deaths that occurred in Northern Ireland in the, what I would call the troubles between the late 70s and the late 90s. So, you know, in, in or the late 60s and the late 90s, so that's 30 years of, in which there were three and a half thousand deaths, right? Well, we've had almost the same le- level of death in 2021 alone, demonstrably from the vaccines. There's a clear correlation between the rollout of the vaccines and the death spikes. It can be shown without question. If there was a newspaper worthy of the name, it would have been on the front page multiple times in the last six months. And yet, nothing, not one death of this, of this number has been reported as such. So this is the level, this is where we've come to in Ireland. You know, I mean, not in this particular context, Ireland is not, not unique in this, but there is a unique toxicity to the condition that Ireland has fallen into now, where the only thing that matters is that Ireland turn itself into whatever the richest forces in the world desire. That in other words, we have to become what Google and Facebook want. That is, you know, otherwise they will leave, appears to be the implicit, you know, threat. Well, I would say leave, please, now. Yes, yeah. Can I right. give you a lift to please. the airport? Can I, I, I you yeah. know, come along, I'll be with you in any minutes. I'll take you there, you know. But no, this is not the mentality. And uh, unfortunately, our country is no longer our country. And uh, it is no longer the country I grew up in. You know, and it has been demonized by, by appalling journalists, appalling bad journalists. You, you refer to me, I have to take, pick you up and correct you on one point. You refer to me as a journalist. I absolutely, I, I, I repudiate the title of journalist with every fiber of my being now. I, I have told my wife that on the day after my death, if any of the, if there are obituaries and they mention the word journalist, she used to demand a correction and clarification in 24 hours. <laughs> nice. It is the most... Uh, scurrilous, scrofulous profession on the face of the planet now. There's no question. All over the world, not just in Ireland, but in America, everywhere. I mean, it's scandalous what they have been doing for the last two years uh, and in other contexts for much longer than that. Uh, so that's rough, roughly a sketch of, of where we are in Ireland now until the time of the COVID thing. And you see, well, where do we start with the COVID thing? COVID thing is essentially in my oh, well, view. I do, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's come back to COVID. I do have a question for you on um, sort of on the the broad outline that you've sketched here, uh, and the the rapid decline of Ireland from from Catholic country into um, you know a sort of authoritarian dystopia that you've sketched out for me. I often you know I have this personal this personal uh, maxim that I try to abide by. In which I say, you know, never attribute to malice or to malevolence what you can also contribute to um, sort of blissfully unaware incompetence. Um, but I and so so I often look at policy failures and think, oh, yeah, they're meaning well, but they're completely missing the mark because they don't think through the consequences of their actions. I um, I often, though, and this is actually happening, I think, more recently, I look at policy decisions from policymakers and I think, no, there's something else going on here. There's actually... There's actual malice involved. Uh, there's malevolence. Um, as a Catholic, uh, I take seriously the influence of uh, supernatural um, 
entities, principalities, and powers in our in our affairs. And so I often look at things now and think, no, there's something more diabolical, literally diabolical going on here. Uh, yes. This isn't simply just, you know, policy incompetence. But what what do you think when you survey what's happened in Ireland? Uh, what, what do you have as a response to that question? Oh, well, first of all, in principle, I completely agree with what you just said. The second thing I would say is that, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually in a state of bamboozlement, really, watching this. Because there is no kind of track, no trail through my lifetime in public in Ireland, or even in the, my public life as a as a writer and journalist in Ireland in, from the eighties mm-hmm. onwards, to to give to indicate how this might have developed, really. Because so therefore, I, there is something like a moment of rupture somewhere, which I can't quite trace. Like it could have been ten years ago, it might have been twenty years ago, it might have been even thirty years ago, at which it was decided that Ireland would become something like it is becoming. God help us. Now, uh, and they, that has changed everybody, and it seems to have changed entirely the term and terms on which people enter into public life. I mean, several of our leading pol- political figures now are people who got into public life on the basis that they were, for example, pro-life. That, that was their, 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 they went into public life on that basis. I mean, I know one particular guy, He's a minister, has been a minister for the last few years, who, would, who was mentored by a friend of mine who was an intensely Catholic pro-life woman. She, brought her, she helped him to become a politician. She taught him everything she knows, which is a considerable amount. And he has turned. And it seems that they, they, have all, they all turn, you know. And it seems that there is some kind yeah. of process that we don't understand, that is not, a vis- not visible above ground, that it's something like that these people go for office, they, they talk about their values, their, 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 their vision mm-hmm. for Ireland and so on, and then they get elected, and then they get an office, and then one they're sitting behind their desk sorting out their, their uh, blotting paper, and, and there's a knock on the door. And, and somebody or some people come in and, and ask if they can have a word. And, and they sit down, and, 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 and certain things are said. And at, at the end of that encounter, the politician is changed utterly. There's no resemblance to the person who was elected, who stood before the people. Yeah. In fact, he's the opposite in every way. Now, that's happened time and time and time again with political figures. And in fact, there's almost a rule of thumb that the more intensely conservative, as it were, the politician is to begin with, the more rabid that person will become in pursuit of the liberal yeah. or progressive agenda. And the more malevolent that person will become in power. Because now we see that the same figures are there in power, and they are essentially dictators. They are creating mm-hmm. a totalitarian dystopia in Ireland. And there's no, you know, this is not rhetoric now. I mean, I wish it were rhetoric. I wish I was being, you know, just over-egging things. But this is clearly, you know, we have thin people, we have these people stirring up the mob against people who refuse to poison their systems with an untested experimental vaccine, so-called. That isn't even a vaccine to bully them into doing it, to prevent them walking into a cafe and buying a cup of coffee or tea, unless they do what the government demands. That is dragging elderly ladies away by the rosary beads, kneeling in Mm -hmm. protest outside the national broadcasting uh, organization, which is a disgrace to everyone. Did that that actually happen? Oh yeah. That's a a real story? Oh yeah, it is. Or outside the fort courts. You know, robocops descending in their dozens out of vans to attack a bunch of elderly ladies uh, singing hymns outside the courthouse, which happened Goodness when we gracious. were. We, uh, there's a part of this that I haven't filled in. Myself and a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, another former journalist, Jim O'Doherty, at the very early stage in the so-called pandemic, we took a constitutional action against the government, requiring the court to bring the government in and show how this could be done, how you can lock people in their houses, how you can tell people that they cannot travel more than two kilometers from their homes, how you can do any of this thing, how you can close businesses down. And, and we have been filibustered by the courts for two years, but we're now almost ready, we're ready to, in the next month or six, two months, we'll be going to the Supreme Court. And, and there I believe we will actually at last manage to put this question in the frame that we wanted to put it in the first place. But on the day that we were in the Court of Appeal in January, this time last year, 
almost to the day. Uh, we had, there was about 20 people maybe, mainly elderly ladies who are, you know, Catholic ladies with their, they sing their hymns, mm-hmm. they say their rosaries and what. They were, they were out, they waited outside. We were in there all day. And while we were there, they were descended upon by van loads of robocops who literally dragged them away in the backs of those vans. My this goodness. is what we've come to in Ireland. Now, there's an even more sinister thing that's happened in the last week, a couple of weeks. A terrible uh, murder was conducted in a town called Tullamore in the Midlands. And immediately, there was like the orchestration of a mob onto the streets in every town virtually in Ireland, marches, shrines being built. You know, in a sense, yes, of course, it's terrible. It's a terrible thing for a woman to be killed on the streets. But the thing was immediately was to attack men, all men, Irish men, demonize Irish men as in somehow uniquely misogynistic, uniquely a threat to women. And this has been said. There was one actually guy, a doctor, so-called, who was very vocal and very visible, who only became known or notorious during the COVID episode uh, in defending the government's agenda, who actually said on radio there during the week that men should have to do a test, like a driving license test, in order to be allowed to walk out into the streets. Wow. This is where we've come to now. And, and, and nobody blinked. This is, now that's, that's bad enough. But what's actually really interesting is that nobody blinked. Nobody said, come off it. Nobody said, you can't say things like that. You can't demonize people like that. Yeah, now, here's wow. the really interesting thing. In the past few days, an arrest has been made. And it emerges that this, the, per- the person who's the suspect, the person who's been charged is actually not Irish at all. He's an immigrant to Ireland, right? So nobody's, but nobody stepped forward and says, hang on, you've been demonizing the men of Ireland for the last uh, 10 days. Can you now apologize? Mm-hmm. No. It just, it just stopped. You see, this is what I'm, when you talk about malevolence and malice, this is an example. And of course, there are many, many insidious elements of that whole story. The idea, you know, that's because I, I, I know from my own personal experience uh, as, as a journalist going back 25 years, 25 years ago, I started to write about the abuses, the corruption of the family law system in Ireland. And to some extent, it was from personal experience. But I was also, once I started to do it, in receipt of hundreds and thousands of accounts, narratives from other men and indeed the families of other men, the mothers and the the, the sisters of other men who had gone through the same kind of experience. And and because I started to write about that, I was vilified and attacked at that stage by really extreme feminists because it, they, had, they had been there in the 90s. They were, they were already in place. And I would have said that was the first wave of cultural Marxism in Ireland because this is really what this is all about. Ireland is essentially in the grip of cultural Marxism now. And that then morphed into the gay thing in the, in the, the last uh, 10 years. And the, now the migrant thing, you know, where migrants are coming to Ireland, they're being coached to attack Ireland immediately as a racist country. All of this is going on. That's being done by the government or on behalf of the government, by NGOs, non-governmental organizations. They're actually coaching people to come here and immediately de- 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 declare Ireland racist. All of this stuff is going on. All right. So there's pure malevolence. And the, the situation in the past week now is another example of that, where, you see, it's extraordinary you know, to, to, to actually say that a racist killed somebody, that, uh, sorry, that, a, that a, a migrant killed somebody is ipso facto racist, according to these people. You're not allowed to, po- to, to point out the most important detail of the story, notwithstanding that they've been trying to demonize Irish men for a week. But you can do what you like to Irish men. You can say what you like just as you can say what you like about anti-vaxxers or people who are not vaccinated. This is the male- and this is pure totalitarianism. There's no question about it. And it's extremely dangerous. Now, I know it exists in other parts of the world, but it seems to me that it ex- exists in a particularly toxic way in Ireland for all the reasons, or some, and other reasons, of course, as well, uh, that I've been outlining, that we have be- basically sold our soul for survival. Fundamentally, I would say Ireland had come to regard itself by the, by the 1960s as a failed entity. 
Ireland became independent 100 years ago, almost exactly. And, and it, came, it got into its independence at a very bad time, you know, essentially between two world wars. Everybody was very busy with other stuff. It wasn't like perhaps now where Ireland would be, have been to come independent, would at least have some friends coming to its aid in different ways. That didn't really happen. And we struggled for decades and we had massed migration out of Ireland and, and uh, uh, that, really, that hemorrhaging really damaged our country. Uh, and uh, by the 60s, then it was more or less decided we couldn't fend for ourselves. This is really terrible, but it is true. Now, I don't believe that it is true that we couldn't fend for ourselves. What I would say is that the imaginations of the politicians were so deficient that they could see no way for this to happen, mm -hmm. except to create a policy of foreign direct investment. In other words, to invite companies from all over the world to come here and do their business here at the lowest tax corporation tax rates in the world. And uh, essentially, we would live off the, 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 the runoff from their profiteering. That's essentially what the deal was. So it was a bit like the, the analogy I often use is, you know, you, you, your grandfather dies and he leaves you a shop on the, the high street in the town, right? And, and, and you, you go down to look at it and you sit in the cafe across the road and look up at it and you say, oh, yes, yeah, a nice shop. You know, what, what could I sell there? You know, let me think. And then you, you, you have the brilliant idea that, well, why should I bother selling anything? Why should I bother working at all? I'll just live in the apartment upstairs and I'll rent out the shop. And that's what Ireland ha has done. And that's what Ireland is. And so that, you know, if anything cataclysmic were to happen in the world, and I think it might very soon, mm -hmm. uh, Ireland would be at a great loss because it is no longer able to fend for itself because it has living, been living off these corrupt organizations. By definition, corrupt, because the reason they're in Ireland in the first place is to, to dodge taxation in their own countries. Uh, then, right, right. You know, so that's where we are. It's a very sad story. And, and uh, unfortunately, the church has been in, in more and more cowed into, some, first of all, submission and then acquiescence and now complicity in what the government is doing. Yeah, I want to I want to come back to that point about the church, John. But I first want to ask you on the on the immigration question. Immigration obviously comes up in the United States a lot as well. And the debate roughly parallels what you've outlined, that some say, hey, we shouldn't have all of these immigrants coming across because this is what we're seeing. We're seeing rising crime and we're seeing erosion of the culture that we like. And the other side says, you're a bunch of racists. How can you possibly say that? We need to open the borders and let everyone in. And I mean, I don't deny that there are there are racists uh, and there are racist reasons for not wanting immigrants to come in. But um, but how do you defend yourself against the accusation that you are racist? I, I shouldn't have to defend myself against a charge like that. First of all, it's not an honest charge. It is an ideological charge. Sure. It is created out of culture of Marxism and it's created precisely for the purpose mm -hmm. for which it is used, uh, which is to demonize and silence anybody who would dare to challenge what is happening which is essentially a neo-colonization right. of the Western countries in reverse, colonization in reverse, using yeah. you know, people from other countries to flood these countries and destroy their cultures. So the, the, and and to, to intimidate and suppress the indigenous population so that they're afraid to open their mouths, which is essentially what's happened now in Ireland. And, uh, you know, this is not migration. This is very important. This is not immigration migration in the normal sense this is orchestrating mm -hmm. this is actually you know this is actually flooding of deliberate flooding of the pop of, of of our countries with people who have no attachment to ireland no purpose being here you know no reason to be here uh, uh, it's not as if that we need desperately to have workers come and do things in ireland uh, you know if we didn't have these appalling corporations here we wouldn't have any jobs for these people and in fact, right. part of the deal in, in, in allowing them to come here was supposed to be that they would employ Irish people. Well, Google or, uh, employ 5% Irish people in their headquarters in Dublin, 5%. So this has been a trick. And as the result of it is that, that Ireland is no longer Ireland. You see, and, and, and it's, it's very hard to get this across because this word racist is used as a, as a kind of a, I call it like a cattle prod. You know, it's like that if you were mm. thinking of uh, just asking a question, well, how many more people will have to come before we've done our 
fit in, in this alleged, you know, necessity to, to be compassionate to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many more? And the minute you even ask such a question, the t- capital prod is taken out. And you, you, yep. you, the implicit answer, therefore, is as many as we decide. Mm-hmm. You don't have any say in it. So the, yeah, the, I mean, I think uh, you're you're 100 correct, and uh, it is a baseless charge to say that just because someone is asking honest questions about immigration policy or suggesting we need immigration reform that that person is, you know, by definition racist. It sounds like in Ireland, you're you have the same problem that we do here. I suspect this is the same well, across yeah, the Western I, world, where yeah, well, where where racist becomes a catch-all for you know I don't like you and your ideas, and you should be banned from polite society. So you, we yeah. slap the label racist on you, and then you're done. That's that's exactly right, and in fact, we've imported the whole thing from America. You know, the word and the, the whole concept. You know, it's like Ireland is part of America. That we, we've been treated, we treat ourselves as though we were, and though we're an entirely different country with entirely different history, entirely yeah. different scale. Right. Uh, you know, entirely different cultural kind of uh, uh, integrity. Uh, you know, America is a multiplicity of cultures. I don't, you know, not in the multicultural sense necessarily, but it, it, although that's becoming true, insofar as that, that there's any truth in that idea, but in the sense that in different parts of America there are different cultures, clearly, uh, and yet in every part of America you go to, do you know you're in America? And that's the very interesting thing about it, you know, that that there's a unity to America at some level that is almost indescribable. Uh, and Ireland, but in Ireland the unity is much more straightforward. And clear cut, you know, because we have a, you know, a parochial kind of culture in the sense that we, we almost know each other. You know, I mean, that's not literally true, of course. Right. But, but what, but what we have noticed, well, one of the things that I've noticed really, really strongly is that the effect of this on the indigenous population, the host population, as it were, who now are made to feel like second class citizens in their own country. Right. You know, I mean, we have things like housing lists and, 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 and you know, Irish people in, in need of housing have been on like for 10, 20, 15, 20 years. And now there's been a new law enacted, which is, uh, you know, means that if you're in Ireland for, from outside for four months, you're entitled to the key of a front door and a roof over your head. Like, and, and this is like completely bypassing Irish people. So that's just a minor example. But at a more kind of, I suppose, um, existential level, I've noticed that, you know, in the last 20 years, when I talk to people now, Ireland was always a very open country from the point of view of, you know, conversation and, and humor and, 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 and exuberance. You know, I mean, it is it mm-hmm. an intoxicating place to be because people would talk to you who never knew, who didn't know who you were. I mean, they would talk to you in the most immediate, friendly terms. The most, you know, to begin right. to tell you a story about what happened to them on the, the way to the doctor's surgery, for example, they would tell you, and they would. This is something you don't encounter so much in other cultures. In parts of America, you do. It is true, uh, but not so, not in the same way. And what you find now is that more and more people are actually intimidated. They're terrified to open their mouths about anything now in public. It's like that they're so afraid of saying anything in case they may say something that is unapproved by the culture, by the politically correct yep. culture. That we need to really get look at that term because it has a very benign kind of aura about it, political correctness. It's almost like a humorous thing. It's a very insidious thing. It is pure communistic yep. censorship of not alone words, but thoughts. And, you know, I, I was talking to a friend there down the West there last year, maybe uh, last Christmas or so, the year before, and, and I'd known this guy for for. for all my life, from some, we were little boys in school, and and uh, I was asking him about some of the stuff that's going on, about some of the things we're talking about, and I said, "Well, what do people like think about all this stuff? Because it's happening everywhere." And he says, "He said, people look when you mention it to people. He says they look behind them, and then they whisper, and they say something like, but you, you can't open your mouth now.'" This is what's happened. The country has been intimidated into disappearing itself, into abolishing itself, yeah. into committing cultural suicide. And nobody has got the courage to say, no, please. We owe this country to our children. We owe this country to our grandchildren, to the unborn, yet unborn. Mm-hmm. We can't just give it away. 
We don't have the right to give it away. Our forefathers gave their lives for it. But this means nothing now to people because that period of the Celtic Tiger erased all values of patriotism, love of country, you know, and they replaced yeah. them with love of money. That's, that's the really sad thing. And the church has nothing to say about this. In fact, if you, you would, so, um, you're I'm, more likely to be accused of being a racist by a bishop than almost any other category of individual in Irish life. Yeah, let's talk about the church in just a minute. The only, the only other thing I wanted to say is that um, your point about the Celtic Tiger and the moving in of all the tech companies, you know, in America, maybe not so much in Ireland, but in America, another, uh, another frequently used but little understood word is uh, colonialism or um, colonization. And it strikes me that what has happened in Ireland over the past 20 and 30 years as tech companies moved there was a sort of um, you know, tech colonization in which tech companies move in and really take over the culture and dictate that the culture will happen on their terms, et cetera. And so it's very antithetical. You know, fundamentally, it's very antithetical to the values that even, uh, even they preach rhetorically. Uh, but obviously they're not, they're not against colonization everywhere. They're just um, they're, they're they're very willing to use the means of colonization to move into a place like Ireland, and then dictate the terms of their own existence there, and then force others to comply, like you've said, right? Well, you see, my my analysis of that is that the tech companies belong to a kind of a, a cadre of, of or a phalanx of, of operations that ex exude and express values, generally speaking, woke values and. Yeah. But this is really only a front. They are really a, a, a tyrannical front. They, they are a tyran, tyrannical operation. Uh, mm -hmm. They are essentially what we're now dealing with, which is the, the totalitarian uh, uh, impulse sweeping across the globe, seeking to change, to destroy democracy, seeking to destroy freedom, to destroy freedom of speech, uh, uh, and to take over and essentially give us the, the kind of uh, political cultures that we read about in horror in the books of Orwell and Huxley and so on and, and Solzhenitsyn and all of this, you know, all of the stuff that we, you know, we thought we were in a certain sense, if you like, uh, inoculated against these uh, happenings by virtue of having, having known about them, of having been immersed in them, of having watched the Berlin Wall fall down, of being knocked down and, and, and understanding the meaning of that. We thought that yeah. that was going to protect us and now we're actually beginning you know, we're at 1918 now, 17 now. You know, we're, this is, we're at the beginning of this whole uh, thing happening again. And these people are at the back of it. You know, they exude certain values. This is an amazing, you know, again, a moral inversion in a certain sense that is more generalized. When you actually think about it, this has been my experience watching it, to look at journalists who are generally speaking in the past known to be left liberal. And in my experience with them, yes, they were. And, you know, I got on with them lots of them, even though we wouldn't always agree about everything, uh, uh, you know, they were, they were, their intentions seemed to be good in that regard. Uh, politicians. Now, we have politicians who, were spent, who built their careers on talking about uh, discrimination and how horrific a thing it was and, and about the necessity for equity and fairness and justice. And these people are blithely taking out their fountain pens and signing apartheid diktats into law. They're actually signing diktats, not just in Ireland, but in all over the European countries that stop people going into a shop and buying themselves food. Yeah. And these people still call themselves liberals. So, they, so there's something very strange that's happened now in this, this time of COVID. And, and these corporations, of course, are centrally involved in it. But of course, they don't really have any values other than the value of expansion and profit making. And yeah, totally controlled. Right, no, clearly, clearly. Totally controlled. And they're they're always more than willing to use illiberal means to achieve their, you know, yeah. what they proclaim are liberal ends, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, they, they, the, uh, they, they, they proclaim liberalism in, in a methodology mm -hmm. that is deeply illiberal. But they right, keep proclaiming right, it with exactly. a smile on their face. And they wear T-shirts and, 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 and uh, uh, runners and, and jeans, tight-fitting tight jeans. So you think these are, these are kind of like, Neo hippies or something, you know what I mean? They're not. They couldn't possibly be tyrants. Well, they are. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, you mentioned the church, John. Let's talk about that just briefly before we wrap up here. 
Um, I found out recently, maybe you can confirm this for me. I found out I was, someone was telling me about the Archdiocese of Dublin. And of course, Dublin, a storied archdiocese, uh, several million Catholics once upon a time, at least. Uh, they asked me how many seminarians I thought Dublin had information today, currently. And I was thinking, yeah, I mean, I'm in the Archdiocese of Chicago here. Chicago's having problems. I think Chicago has something like 30 seminarians. D Dublin has maybe 15, 20. No, Dublin has two seminarians information, uh, if my information is correct. Um, that speaks volumes, if true, about the state of the church in Ireland. And it's a church that you've already said today has done absolutely nothing to stop this, this backwards slide uh, into oblivion for Ireland. Yeah. So tell me more about that. Well, I mean, yeah, that's all. That's all true. Uh, uh, broadly, you know, that's the situation. But I, I mean, I don't necessarily see that. I mean, obviously, it's a symptom of something, really. You know, right? Almost like right. terminal, really. You'd have to say, uh, in the in the medium term, at most. Uh, but to me, the, the the question is much deeper than that. That the church has failed Ireland in many, many ways. And the first and foremost way that it failed, it never really taught the Irish people what Christianity was. You know, people have just mm -hmm. superficial, uh, you know, pious kind of ideas that it's, it's all about being, yes, kind of yes. being nice and, and, and all that, you know, therapeutic kind of stuff, you know. And, uh, and that now has become the fashionable brand, as it were, in the present, uh, 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 under the present leadership of the church globally. And, and of course, but but as that you know, touchy feely kind of Catholicism grows, so does in a strange way the repugnance of it. You know that that people retreat from it, even though they would pay lip service. It's a little, very little, a little bit analogous to the kind of the way that the 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 tech companies talk the nice talk, but then have the the, the iron fist. You know that right. people do not recognise anything in what the Church in Ireland is now saying that they need, and yet they miss it without knowing they're missing it, because all of the other symptoms mm -hmm. that the people are suffering, you know, I mean, if you, you just look at, to take around, like the level of, of, of antidepressants that are can be consumed in Ireland, or indeed any European country. Yeah, sa yeah. same in America, yeah. Nearly, so you know, yeah. Tens of millions of people, I think over 100 million people, yeah. Yeah, these these are like surrogates for for you know, the, the spirit of, to, to, the, the enrichment of the human spirit by the religious idea, the Christian idea and so on. But you can't raise these questions. You could not raise these questions. You haven't been able to raise these questions for 30 years. I, did, I tried for many years when I was a columnist of the Irish Times to write about these things. And I was, you know, they put these uh, comment sections on the main end of my column and, you know, on, online and it was absolutely just vile every day. It's this stream of, of, of absolute vomit, pardon my French, you know, yeah. every that followed every single thing I wrote. And that was this that was not an accident, you know? Because as soon as I left mm -hmm. they got rid of them, you know? Like you see and, and and the problem was that then the church leadership, running scared of this kind of thing, started to turn on those of us who had defended it in the hard times. And right. more or less left us standing there taking the, the in the in this the hail of bullets. You know, and then disowned us. That's that's pretty much happened. And then they basically rejected everything we'd been saying. In other words, that you know, it, it, it's even that the moral inversion that if we were saying, well, you know, uh, abortion is wrong, you know, next thing you hear priests giving sermons saying, well, actually, abortion is not wrong, not always, first, and mm -hmm. then you know, not nothing. Wow. And, you know, so this and gay marriage is fine. You would tell, you know, or priests confessing on the altar from the altar that they were gay. And, and, and all this, you know, tearfully to their congregations. Like, mm. all this stuff. And, and of course, it's not about, Christianity is not about gay or it's not about abortion. You know, it's about Christ. But you couldn't even begin to approach the meaning of that. Because any time you try to discuss it in public, you were ridiculed and abused. Yeah. And, and, and not supported in any way by the, by the, by the formal church. So, you know, to be fr quite frank with you, Zach, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure where this leaves the church globally or in Ireland domestically. I don't, but I'm most of all not sure where it leaves me because, you know, my relationship with God and, and with Christ is, is becoming more and more, I would say, privatized. In a certain sense, it is bypassing the church. It is almost, my attitude to the church is, well, the church 
you know, as it stands, doesn't speak to me in any way that I can recognize. So I'm not going to disown it. I'm not going to walk away from it. But neither am I going to walk into it to be insulted and abused. And that's what I do. And I think an awful lot of people mm -hmm. in the kind of category that I belong to, in other words, people who kind of steadfastly held publicly to the faith over to the rough times of the past 30 years, are feeling like that now. That, you know, we, you know I don't go to Mass in Ireland anymore. I go, if I'm in the UK, and I haven't been for quite a long time because of the COVID, I will go to, I know churches there uh, that, that I can go to. Uh, uh, where there are Latin masses and you know beautiful singing, and mm -hmm. you have a sense of some connection to what you inherit right. as a child. But the church in Ireland means nothing to me now. I have to be honest with you. I mean, if if that's the church, then I'm sorry, you can keep it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's really sad, John. Um, I think my final question for you is just. Uh, you know, where, where does Ireland go from here? I, it, you, you're obviously still living in Ireland, so maybe you have not given up hope, but do you think there is hope for Ireland to have a turnaround of any kind? Um, and well, why, why stay if not? Well, in a strange way, uh, the, the hope that I would have for Ireland is that it would be completely decimated. That, you know, we need a process of absolute, you know, destruction of everything that has been built in the last 30 years. And I mean the economy. We need to get rid of the corporations. Yeah. We need to have our country back to ourselves so that we can put the foundations down for a new country. Uh, we need to go back to the most basic values. And I don't mean necessarily religious values just, but the most values, the most basic values of self-sustenance, you know, that we need to start planting potatoes again in our gardens and harvesting them and eating them so as to grow ourselves again as a new people on this land because otherwise Ireland in, in, in a very short number of years will be just an, an island in the Atlantic inhabited by people who don't even know the name of it who do, couldn't care less what it's, what it's called so long as their social welfare payments are coming through we just walk hither and thither across this landscape there was a great patriot called Thomas Davis where he, he, in, in an essay he wrote one time, he said, this, this Ireland of ours is no sandbank. It's an ancient land, honoured into antiquity by its valour, its courage, and its whatever. I can't remember. No sandbank. Well, now it is a sandbank. It's just a place that people walk across. They, 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 without necessarily speaking to each other anymore, because they're not sure what they might say. That would yeah. get them, you know, to be called some name. And this is what the, the political class have cultivated now in our country, this terrible, terrible, terrible darkness. And the strange thing is that nobody outside, or very few people outside, I recognize this. I mean, I know I'm going to America. They still have this romantic, nostalgic idea of Ireland. Sorry, it's long gone, long gone. Ireland is, I would yeah. say, I, I, I once wrote in, in, in First Things something to this effect. I didn't quite put it correctly, I think. I think I said Ireland was the, the least. I, after the referendum on abortion, I said Ireland was now the, the most unchristian country in the world. I, I would rephrase that and say mm. it is the most unchristian Christian country in the world. Right, right. Certainly. Yeah, it's uh and it's so sad to see the um see this glorious nation that was once so Catholic slip slip and fall so far. Well, I, mean, um, I think so I will encourage my listeners to to pray for Ireland for yeah. sure. The nadir of that people will if you know there's a terrible I, I don't want people but just if you want to see if you want to witness one moment that encapsulate everything I see you know you can go you see it on YouTube. It's the scenes in the courtyard of Dublin Castle on the night after the announcement of the result of the 2018 abortion which made abortion referendum which made abortion legal in Ireland. And that's where there were thousands upon thousands of young Irish people with mm -hmm. glasses, plastic glasses of lager, toasting, cheering, dancing, the murder, the slaughter of innocents, cheering yeah. the slaughter of innocents. That's what we fall into. That's what we fall into now. And, 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 and that's, seen, that's progress. You see, this is the amazing thing. Right. That's progress. Very important to understand. 
that that's the ultimate moral inversion. And it tells you that language means nothing. And in the COVID period, we've learned yes. that language means nothing at all. Truth means nothing at all. Facts mean nothing at all. Science means nothing at all. All that matters is power. And we are under the boot already of the most vicious totalitarian power that the world has ever seen. Although it has not yet shown its teeth. But if we do so... In the I think that's the scariest part. Yeah. Yes. I think that's the scariest part. It has not yet shown its teeth. Yes. I've seen images from the uh, the scene that you described. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, it's it's things like that, John, that really that really make me think. There's there's more than just sort of um, ignorant and ignorant incompetence going on here. There's something malevolent. There's something diabolical. Yes. Um, I think it's the philosopher Peter Kreeft who says um, he says that abortion is a demonic inversion of the Eucharist, which is why it uses the same words. This is my body, but with totally different intention and meaning yes uh and i really i think he's onto something there i think so and 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 one of the things that 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 i felt immediately about that period was that there would be a terrible price to be paid for that because the the significance of that moment is much more than simply the legalization of abortion which has happened in lots of different countries Mm -hmm. this is the only time in history that a people had voted to destroy the protection that would have saved the lives of those children like it literally, that it literally, you say the question was put to the people: Would you like to kill these children that are that are not yet even dreamt of? And the people said, "Yes, yes, we will." Now that that's the that's the abomination. And it seems to me, it seemed to me at the time, Zach, that you know that the price of that would be horrendous. And I think we're now beginning to pay that price uh, because you can see that the effect it had immediately. And I sensed this within months. I sensed that, and I wrote about it at the time, that, that in a hospital, you felt this sense of menace. You felt this sense of, you know, if you see an old person, you saw an old person being wheeled along on a gurney, nobody talking to the person, the, the men wheeling the gurney, not speaking to this person. That something had changed, and that the value of life had absolutely disintegrated in the minds of the people. Because if you can kill little babies, then who can't you kill? You certainly grizzled old fellows like me haven't got much hope, have they? If they get into a hospital and they are deemed to be, that the quality of their lives is not up to scratch, well then, goodbye. You know, call the undertaker and we'll, we'll do the rest. That's where we are. Yeah. And it's been yeah. happening in Ireland for the past two years. As I said, you know, we've had, you know, more deaths from the vaccines than we've had in Northern Ireland troubles in trouble in 30 years. We've also had as, as nearly as many deaths in that nursing homes, quite quite unconnected, in the same period, yeah. in, or in the earlier period, particularly in 2020. Uh, people who were you know killed by midazolam, dr- drugs, sedatives, by stress, panic, loneliness. Isolation, mm-hmm. deliberately orchestrated. Death of despair. Yeah. Death of despair. Yes, and 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 now yeah. you know that that they're trying to cover it up, and we have these corrupt journalists, so-called. I don't call them journalists; I call them journaliers. And and journaliers, uh, I like that. Yeah, it's it's that's what they should be called for all eternity. Yeah. Well, John, this is not a super uplifting conversation, but I'm really grateful for you joining me to have it. It's an important one. Um, I, I, I will commend again your book, Give Us Back the Bad Roads, to uh, all my viewers and listeners. Uh, a really moving account. I, I love how it is personal memoir. You've, you've lived these times uh, and your love for Ireland is apparent in every single word you write. And I can only imagine the uh the depression that you must deal with on a regular basis seeing what ireland has turned into it's a really it's a really sad state of affairs um yeah uh, i encourage my listeners to to pray for the country and pray especially for the church and pray for the courage of the the church's leaders there um but at this point perhaps things are just too far gone and like you said there needs to be a a total decimation john yes i think so and and i mean you know i i wouldn't i won't be ruling that out i mean you know i perfectly think we, we won't even need god to do it for us We'll do it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, abroad is the way that leads to destruction. And I think uh, we're certainly headed that way already. So the uh, the decimation will happen. It's just a matter of how quickly, I think. Um, 
Well, thanks so much for joining me, John. A pleasure to have you Thank as you. always, always enjoy speaking with you. Uh, to my listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, give me a thumbs up uh, on YouTube. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button if you're not already subscribed. I did not yet mention, uh, totally forgot to mention at the beginning, so p- apologies, though it is in the show notes. Uh, John um, writes on Substack now. Uh, not, of course, as a journalist, since he's certainly not that, but uh, johnwaters.substack.com is where you can subscribe to his writings there. I think he told me he has over 200 uh, different posts there. Something like that, yeah. Uh, and there's, a, there's the free Unchained. tier and then the, the paid. Yeah, John Waters What's Unchained will find, it, will find it as well. John Waters Unchained. The Johnny Cash song. John Waters Unchained. Yeah. Yep, johnwaters.substack.com. So go ahead and subscribe there if you'd like to read more of, of John's work. And uh, John, keep fighting the good fight. Pleasure to have Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Thank you very much. God bless. All right, to my listeners, send me a note if you have any questions for me or for John. Zach, C-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.